welcome to another episode of Eureka Nerd. I'm Liam, an outdoor cat. And I'm Will, a Labrador retriever puppy who plays well with others. We'll explain more about exactly what that means at the very end of the show, but first we've got some hot, hot science coming at you straight from space. And indeed, we start with space energy technology restored to make power stations more efficient. This is heat converter technology that was going to power satellites. You say it was, because um, it kind of fell out of favour. There wasn't much of a market for it, or at least not in its previous forms, because it just wasn't efficient enough. It was especially hard to do in space. But with developments in graphene technology here on Earth, things are looking a bit more usable now again. So these are the thermionic energy converter, originally developed in the 1950s for use in space programs. The TEC is composed of two electrodes, the emitter and collector, separated by a small vacuum gap. And what this research has done is replace the tungsten collector with a graphene one. Graphene being a single sheet of carbon atoms arranged in a hexagonal pattern. It's a lot like what's inside a pencil. And this research, published in Nano Energy, is using the graphene converter in place of tungsten to increase efficiency for the heat converter up to seven times its previous level. Dr. Hong Yuan Yuan from Stanford University says that the thermionic energy converter technology is very exciting. And not only because you get to say thermionic energy converter quite often, but he says that thermionic energy converters could not only help make power stations more efficient and therefore have a lower environmental impact, but they could be also applied in distributed systems like solar cells. He says that in the future we envisage it being possible to generate one to two kilowatts of energy from water boilers, which could partially power your house. So currently large power stations use the old-fashioned tungsten collector TECs, but because the Graphene collector ones can be made impressively more efficient. This could make a huge difference to even just access to energy. If you can install this in some solar panels or even in a in a petrol-powered generator, you can bring electricity to all sorts of people who aren't currently able to have it because of things like living on the side of a mountain in the Himalayas. It's kind of weird to think how much of our energy as a species is provided from just making water hot enough. And that this is coming at it in a slightly different way of being able to harness that heat directly and uh, reducing the waste energy generated from heat, being able to recoup a lot of that alongside the existing power stations we've got. And of course this might also be useful in conjunction with another piece of technology we're covering this week. Chemists have created a molecular leaf that's in inverted commas, because it's not really a leaf. It's not just a tiny, tiny plant. That collects and stores solar power without solar panels. But this is literally a nanographene-based molecule, which chemists have built, which can convert atmospheric carbon dioxide into carbon monoxide, which can be burned as fuel, with only heat input from the sun. And you might be thinking, oh, wait, turning carbon dioxide into a burnable fuel. Yeah, that's trees. Well, they've managed to do it in the lab. They describe the secret to the molecule's efficiency, the nanographene, it's like you say, an atom-thin layer of graphite, as the sheer darkness of its colour, being able to absorb a huge amount of sunlight. Which is what powers the reaction. The molecules that are actually doing the reacting, on the other hand, is a rhenium complex connected via an organic compound known as bipyridine, 
I mean, I don't, I'm not a chemist, I don't know exactly what these are. I understand from the article that rhenium is quite a rare element and... Well, how rare can it be? Let's work it through. Arsenic, aluminum, something, something, selenium. I think they get rarer and rarer as they go on. Cobalt, nickel, nitrogen, halloumian, then it's rhenium. Yeah, that's a cheese. Halloumian, then rhenium. Yes, that's the one. Anyway, Yang Shi Li at Indiana University, who is leading the team of scientists, has said he'd like to replace that rhenium atom with manganese, which is a more abundant metal, less expensive, um, and also make the molecules more long-lived and able to survive in a non-liquid form. I just thought how that must look if it's in a liquid form now, just having just a black goo that makes energy. That does sound like the plot to Dead Space 3. Well, Oh wait, it's... no, that was Doom. That was a plot for Doom. I apologise. Well, it's not unusual for people to take fictional concepts from science fiction and try to make them real. We've seen it writ large with mobile phones going from communicators via walkie-talkies to what we have in our pockets around our homes all over the world now. And the way that, for example, Minority Report completely changed how people were designing user interfaces. Oh god, and now everything's touchscreen and you can't find a physical keyboard phone unless you're going for Blackberries. And they're not making those anymore because nobody wanted them. But whilst we quietly mourn the loss of a telecommunications manufacturer, we can at least look forward to having a sonic screwdriver. Kind of. It's part sonic screwdriver and part Star Trek tricorder. I hate crossovers. But the important aspects of each of these, that this, let's say, potential invention. Physicists involved have proved that the physics of it ought to work. They haven't built a prototype yet. That is an important distinction, that the physics should work, and then having the physics work. But the physics should work to make a sonic screwdriver slash tricorder style device which can be used to collect very detailed information about, for example, their structure or their chemical makeup. So they describe it as kind of part MRI, mass spectroscopy, with chemical analysis, maybe not the full-blown being able to detect if you've been poisoned by some brain slug from Arrakis or something, but... but the device might be able to, for example, detect particular protein mo molecules which are involved in cancers. The picture attached to this article, which is coming from the Australian National University, features Dr. Marcus Doherty and the PhD student Michael Barson at the Laser Lab, and they've clearly set up a whole array of just stuff in front of them to make it look proper sci-fi. What a bunch of nerds. Stories like this really nail down what scientists are. Deep down, is massive nerds. I can't mm. imagine. I, I don't relate to that at all. Not even slightly. Not a bit. Hypothetically, the way the device would work would be using tiny defects in a diamond to measure the mass and chemical composition of molecules with an... <sighs> Say it. With advanced quantum techniques. We think the physics should work. Really? Have you built anything? No. Okay, tell us how it works. Advanced quantum techniques. I mean, I'm sure it's legit. I'm sure it makes sense on paper, but it requires advanced quantum techniques and a defect diamond to make the Doctor Who go. Quantum is a very difficult concept. It's, um... It's a mess. That's sort of inherent to the theory. 
it would be nice. MRIs very useful in diagnosing a wide range of diseases. Mass spectroscopy can help identify, like you say, chemical composition and origin, and you can use it to track and identify where in the world certain objects have come from, where in time they came from, even. Being able to have all of that in your hand would be a huge advance, but it's not going to be on the shelves next year, no. I think. The quantum techniques that are being utilised are very similar to the ones that make atomic clocks and gravitational wave detectors go, so at least we know they do something. If they work in something else, they might work in this. We just might have to be a little bit patient before a working prototype is produced. We might not have enough quantum technology to make the sonic screwdriver tricorder a working reality until, I don't know, Doctor Strange turns up and gives us the eye of Agamotto so we can do... That's magic. That's not the same thing at all. I come from a world where the two are the same. Our next invention follows on from something a bit too futury to be real just yet to something that makes so much sense it's a wonder no one got there first. A sponge that can soak up oil from Argonne National Laboratory. The oleo sponge can soak up oil that has been spilled, for example, from a deep water horizon pump. Even from any of the leaky hydrofracture wells we talked about in the last episode. The oil can then be squeezed out of the sponge so it can be used. And, I mean, according to this article, the sponges that have been made so far have been wrung out hundreds and hundreds of times and have not yet shown any sign of any breakdown. So they can be reused, as far as we know, indefinitely. This is not an excuse to remove regulations on gas drilling, oil drilling, shipments, transport whatsoever, but it is a way of maybe not murdering every part of the environment around us. It's a good way of mitigating the effects when an accidental spill does happen. So this is a really clever bit of technology from a chemical standpoint. They're starting with polyurethane foam, which you might find in your furniture cushions, which might be in your roof to help insulate your house. They describe it as having lots of nooks and crannies, like an English muffin. So the foam has a lot of surface area, but a little bit more needs to be done to it to enable it to actually grab hold of oil molecules. That something is a technique called sequential infiltration synthesis, or SIS, which infuses hard metal oxide atoms into the nanostructure of the foam, all of that huge surface area it's got, which enables it to grab a hold, to bind with oil, and then be wrung out and then bind again and run back out, leaving you with a reusable, oil-absorbent sponge. The metal oxide atoms are essentially a primer um, on the surface of the foam to which an oil-loving molecule can be attached, which will bind to the oil molecules. Not only is this potentially useful in the case of massive oil spills like Deepwater Horizon, which had the added difficulty of leaving oil actually floating in the water column rather than just on the surface of the water, which makes it more difficult to clean up. As well as dealing with huge disasters like that, these might be really very, very useful for helping clear up ports and harbours where leaky oil or oil from the surface of ships will dirty up the water. Just your general surface level pollution. But hey, people are saving the world. It's good news that people are trying to save the world. Because, you know how ever since the Terminator movies came out, some people have been worried about, some people have been waiting to embrace the 
the coming of the robots who will destroy mankind. I am both. Well, we seem to keep trying to equip them to do that. For example, by training robots to make people cry. I'm not sure that'll quite end the world. It's going to be part of the technique. As you are trudging through the Prisoner of War line with T-1000s looking down on you with their big red laser eyes, they will play a mournful song because researchers from an international team at Osaka University with the Tokyo Metropolitan, uh, IMEC in Belgium, and Crimson Technology Industry Partner have developed robots that can compose sad songs. The machine learning advice detects the emotional state of its listeners to produce new songs to elicit more emotional response. Currently, machines that compose music are very much using just the technical information, whereas this new sad bot uses sensors connected to wireless headphones to register how you're feeling. Which means there's something in this robot going, if no tears, then increased violins, I guess? I think maybe it just it will do do some experimental jazz sounding stuff just to see what triggers your brainwaves. I mean, Mayasuki Numao, a professor at Osaka University, says that we can use this in healthcare to motivate people to exercise or cheer them up. But, but so far, mostly the so article far, is talking about making people cry. It's about giving you the feels. I don't know, I don't think... I'm not sure if Emobot will be the death of us all. What might be? It's possible we might be carried off in the same manner as everyone's favourite prehistoric megafauna, the dinosaurs, by a big rock. I misread the opening paragraph of this. Rather than, do mass extinctions like the fall of the dinosaurs? And I thought it said, do you like mass extinctions? <laughs> like, from a research point of view, I think they're interesting, and there's some weird there's ones out there. There's a lot to learn from mass extinctions. Um... But the story is, contrary to some people's current assumptions that um, bombardments from large asteroids are somewhat periodical, that there are usually clusters of them, that you can, to a certain extent, predict when you're likely to have a large impact. It seems that this is not the case. And this starts off with a doctoral student named Sana Holm Almva at Lund University studying craters because there are lots of craters around the Earth, some ranging from just a few metres wide to some over 100 kilometres, and Holm Avak was going through and confirming the number of craters that could be dated, that could be confirmed even, and she's come down to a list how out of 190 impact craters, there are 22 whose exact age is known within 99% surety. Now, as 190 impact craters that are known on Earth, the 22 are not only 99% sure we know how old they are, they are also formed within the last 500 million years. I mean, I'd be sort of surprised that there are any impact craters older than that that are, you know, extant and confirmed, because geology is happening and 500 million years is plenty of time for geology to happen, and biological processes speed up a lot of the geological processes. Plants, for example, breaking up soil. People not noticing where they're laying down a city or two. Analyzing the timeline on which these 22 impact craters lie shows that almost certainly the bombardment of our planet from space is a random. Completely statistically improbable. So, here it is, once and for all. Space, space does not care about, about you. you.
embrace the terrifying void of statistical insignificance in space. But big rocks are not the only things that might wipe out populations of living creatures. Oh no, there's so many things. Emo bots to start with. Volcanoes and climate change in general, which volcanoes can be involved in. For example, you will almost certainly know lots about the extinction that killed the dinosaurs, because it killed the dinosaurs. It's the big one. And they are, as previously mentioned, everyone's favourite prehistoric megafauna. But before the dinosaurs arrived, there was a much bigger extinction. Cast your mind back in time all the way back to the Permian-Triassic boundary about 250 million years ago. Dinosaurs are a way down the evolutionary tree. We're not going to see them for quite some time, but what we do have is a young Earth that is teeming with marine life. There are oceans all over the planet that are just filled to bursting with primitive life, but life all the same. So we've got this young Earth, and then 95% of those marine species are gone. Disappeared. The commonly accepted theory as to why this probably happened attributes it to global warming. So uh, volcanic activity, putting lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the earth warms, the sea becomes too warm for the creatures living in it, it makes lots of chemical difference to the oceans and wipes out all that life. But... This research from the University of Geneva, working alongside the University of Zurich, looking very, very closely at some marine sediments, reckons that instead of global warming, it was a sharp ice age that actually knocked off all those species. And the reasoning for this snap freeze comes from looking at these sediment layers in the Nanpanjang Basin in southern China. And these are very well preserved, so they can do very accurate studies on the diversity and history and the climate of the Permian-Triassic period. And Bjorn Barasil, first author of the study, says, We made several cross-sections of hundreds of metres of the sediments and determined the exact positions of ash beds contained in these sediments. Now, the ash beds are important because they contain certain minerals which the team are able to very accurately date. You've probably heard of carbon dating. You can use other elements for that, including uranium. And Dr. Basil points out that mineral zircon incorporates uranium and has the specificity of decaying into lead over time at a well-known speed. So by measuring the concentrations of uranium and lead, they can date the sediment layer to an accuracy of 35,000 years, which is fairly precise for periods over 250 million years. So, looking at the sediment layers, researchers realised that the mass extinction at the Permian-Triassic boundary is represented by a gap in sedimentation, which indicates that sea level dropped at that point. And the obvious explanation for a massive drop in sea level is massive ice sheets locking all that water up. The gap seems to indicate an 80,000-year-long ice age probably caused by large amounts of sulphur dioxide being ejected into the atmosphere and um, and essentially causing a global dimming effect. It's the kind of threat that comes along with nuclear winter, that there might be you know, enough stuff in the atmosphere to block out the sun. This happens, and it can come from volcanoes. And Urs Schalteger, leader of the research, says that this species' disappearance during an ice age was caused by the activity of volcanism in the Siberian traps which some people look at today and think, oh, they're about ready to blow. The formation of limestone deposits after this gap indicates a more moderate temperature. Right, you've got 
bacteria marking the return of life thanks to the uh, slow warmth and of course what naturally follows from there is dinosaurs. Dinosaurs via an intense period of global warming caused by further volcanism in the Siberian traps putting lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere rather than dust and sulfur dioxide. So it might not be climate change that gets us after all or even the sad sad robot songs but just volcanoes. What can you do to stop them? Nothing at all. Just ask the people of Pompeii. But we move on from the scary futures, the mild annoyance of today. The mild annoyance of being a social species. And one of the things that we have as a social species is socially contagious behaviours. For example, yawning or scratching. It's so contagious that as soon as I've read this headline, brain hardwired to respond to others itching, I start feeling itchy. I get it right under my ears. I can feel my beard tickling away just that scratch, scratch, scratch. Maybe if you're listening to this now and you've started itching, then... We're sorry? Yeah, sorry about that. But it's not just us. It's also, it's a behaviour that also happens in mice. It's something that is just hardwired into the neural circuits of mice and primates. Probably many of the things in between. Research published in the March 10th edition of Science Journal. Research at the Washington University Center for the Study of Itch. Which sounds like the worst place to work. The team, led by Zhu Feng Chen, tested mice to see what happened in their brains when they develop an itch response to another mouse scratching. They tested this in person with two mice in a cage, and they tested this remotely with a mouse being shown just a video of another mouse scratching and saw that there were activity in a structure called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, that there was a release of a chemical substance called gastrin-releasing peptide, which seems to be a key transmitter of itch signals between the skin and spinal cord. And they do highlight that mice don't have very good vision. It's it's very um, gentle the way they talk about it. They say that it was surprising because mice are known for their poor vision. They use smell and touch to explore areas, so we didn't know that they would notice a video. And not only do they see the video, but they could tell that there was scratching occurring in it, and that it's not the visual confirmation that it needs to scratch, but the brain sees it and sends out these signals using GRP, that gastrin-releasing peptide, as a messenger. It's a cellular response, not an active choice to think, ooh, I might be itchy, but it's happened, it's too late, have a scratch. Yes, the brain isn't consciously thinking, ooh, I might be itchy. The brain is going, he's itchy, itchy, itchy. Yet more proof that brains are weird. We are only just getting started on how brains can do all kinds of weird and wonderful things, as our next study from the Technical University of Munich illustrates, where they've been talking to people about how their neurodivergency, specifically having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, might be used for business success. So the team has interviewed a number of entrepreneurs with ADHD. There is anecdotal evidence that many successful entrepreneurs have ADHD. There are various ADHD behaviours which fit in quite well with potential for entrepreneurial success. 14 people who the researchers spoke to described various ways in which their ADHD interacted with their work as a self-employed person. So many of them described that they were very bored in office jobs and other such employment. Working a set nine to five 
doesn't necessarily fit in with the variation in focus that you experience as someone with ADHD. So that's a a motivator to take up self-employment and start your own business. Beyond that, there's a lot of traits of ADHD that can interact very well with trying to run your own business. There's a certain amount of creativity involved. The connections that your brain draws between things aren't necessarily obvious to people who are neurotypical. This is something that also happens in other neurodivergencies and learning disabilities. I know it's, it's something that is quite commonly associated with dyslexia, for example, is making unusual connections between things. One of the people they interviewed reported introducing 250 new products in just a few years, and several participants reported feeling at ease and stimulated in situations that would be highly stressful for other people, so meetings with uh, important customers. The impulsive behaviours can be very helpful with dealing with issues that arise when unforeseen circumstances. I know that high activity levels and impulsivity can also lead to success in very fast-paced businesses. If you have to make quick, short decisions based on information that is available and not spend too long thinking about it, booking up, for example, finance or making short, sharp business deals, then that might be an advantage. One of them describes even securing a business deal over lunch with a friend. At lunch, the friend says, by the way, I'm retiring, and he buys the company right there and then. The disadvantage of this is that if you haven't thought it through, it might be a terrible choice, but it's too late to do anything about it by the time you've made the choice. And most of them said they feel that this kind of quick decision-making is the only way to be productive and they are perfectly willing to live with any setbacks that might result from it. The downside of that impulsiveness is mentioned by all of the people in the study, which is that routine tasks like bookkeeping are boring and difficult to focus on. Your tax returns for the third quarter have uh, low motivation. Yes, and a third of those surveyed did have limited success or in fact failed in their business ventures. But since, if I remember my business GCSE correctly, a third of new businesses fail in their first year anyway. So it doesn't look like the ADHD is making much difference in that dimension. And our next piece of research from the Journal of Economic Behaviour and Organisation towards the position that pessimism about one's position could be hampering efforts to remove the pay gap between male and female workers. This headline, female pessimism about pay could sustain the gender pay gap, sounds a little bit like, oh, well, I mean, it's your fault. Which, since this pessimism is born of the same structural sexism as all of the rest of it, is not the case. I'm just making that perfectly clear, that it is not women's fault. Because... While women tend to underestimate their performance and underestimate how much they ought to be earning, their male colleagues consistently overestimate these things and rate themselves much higher on performance and value. To me, that doesn't sound like pessimism. That sounds like institutional patriarchy, that women think they are earning less, that women think they can bargain for less if they angle for a raise, for example, or seek for promotion. And there have been previous studies which have shown that women are less likely to ask for a raise or a promotion, whereas men who feel they aren't earning enough 
almost always will. Is it really pessimism if the system actually is rigged against you? This is a UK-based study, and the Office of National Statistics puts the overall gender, gender pay gap in the UK at 9.4% for full-time employees in 2016. And the case is put forward at the end of this press release by Professor Veronica Hope Haley, Dean of the University of Bath's School of Management, that the onus is on policymakers and employers to foster female talent so that initiatives to close the gender pay gap can succeed. From April this year, we're set to see new regulations requiring companies to publish information on the difference between what men and women in their organisations are paid, which, if you know your male colleagues are earning more than you, you can go to your boss and say, so about this, I'm pretty sure I'm doing a better job than that guy. Or at least the same job. He might argue that, but as this shows, he's overestimating how good he is. Men. Speaking of thinking that you're doing quite a good job, what about other people who you think are doing quite a good job? Trustworthy people. Doctors, for example. In keeping with most of the things you've probably heard about the placebo effect, the more you trust your healthcare provider, be they doctors, nurses, specialists, the more likely you are to feel better. And the more well you will feel. Research from the University of Basel, published in the journal PLOS 1, was looking at the investment of trust in healthcare providers across Europe, Asia, North America and Australia, uh, a meta-analysis of 47 studies, which looked at the investment of trust and the perceived improved health state of people undergoing medical treatment. Now we say perceived because the measurable differences in the participants' health weren't. There's things like satisfaction, quality of life, perceived complaints about how you are being treated, those are... Yes, the patients are not physically better, but they feel better. Which is half the point of healthcare. So, um, yeah, if you trust your doctor, you might feel better. So make sure you have a doctor you trust. Human perception is a weird thing. I mean, we've already talked about how, just by saying the word, itch, 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 we can trigger your brain into getting all... Itchy. My beard is tingling up something fierce and I'm trying not to mess up the microphone with the sound of me scratching. As perception has been weird, it has been long established that eyewitness testimony is not reliable. If you've done any study of psychology as a subject at school, you probably know about the work of Elizabeth Loftus, who showed people videos of car crashes and showed that by asking them the same question in slightly different ways you could force participants to completely misremember. You know, in spite of a considerable weight of research showing that eyewitness testimony is not a great way to make a conviction, 75,000 suspects, as far as a jury is concerned, eyewitness testimony is the most compelling form of evidence. Humans like to believe other humans. As the press release Details, just ask the 242 individuals who are mistakenly identified by eyewitnesses and served years in prisons for crimes they did not commit until exoneration thanks to DNA testing. And that, I'll emphasise, is just the 242 so far. I wonder how many more are not getting the DNA tests yes. that would exonerate them who will how still contend their innocence. How many for whom there is no DNA evidence to prove either way? How many even make it to the jail? But... While we know there's lots of ways for eyewitnesses to be unreliable, psychologists at Florida Atlantic University have found another one. 
and Dr. Alan Kirsten, alongside a team of psychologists at the university, especially the Harriet L. Wilkes Honours College, were looking at a key question involving eyewitness testimonies and mugshots. They say, does presenting a picture along with a question like, is this the person who did it, instantly forms the association between this picture and the person who did it? Interestingly, younger and older participants misidentified suspects in different ways. They, older adults, seeing a mugshot of an actor led to them experiencing a feeling of familiarity. Would you expect that by being older they've seen a lot more faces? Even if when they are shown a video of the pictured actor performing an action, the action isn't the one they're being asked about, they are more likely to remember that person doing the thing they're being asked about. Where older participants made an association based on the face, younger participants seem to be making the association based on the action. Older participants would say, oh, it's that guy doing the thing, whereas younger participants would say, it's the guy from that thing, even if the faces are different or the same. And Julie Eels, co-author, professor of psychology at Florida Atlantic University, says that false recollection is really troubling from a legal perspective. You don't say. Because this type of memory leads to an eyewitness to put a face to a context of a crime scene, incorrectly linking the two together and leading to the conclusion that this person committed the crime. And I can only imagine this is something that circuit case lawyers have known and employed for years. Even if they couldn't put a reference to it, they knew how to bias a jury one way or the other, how to implant certain suggestions in an eyewitness testimony. Which is why you're not allowed to ask leading questions, but there are other ways of doing it. Hmm. For more on this, I'd recommend looking up a video which we'll put in the links about a gorilla. Click through to find out more. But it's time to swerve away from using your brain for evil, or at least for not good, to something that is quite good. I something that I think overall is extremely wholesome. Just, you know, good. So lots of libraries all over the world run stuffed animal sleepover programs. You take your preschool-aged child to the library, they bring a cuddly toy, and they leave the cuddly toy in the care of the librarians for the night. They're going for a sleepover. And while the animals are at this sleepover, the library staff will take them exploring around the library and help the stuffed animals pick out stories that they might like to read with their children. And then in the morning, the kids come back into the library and the animals are returned to them along with their chosen stories. And up until now, there hasn't been any sort of research as to whether this actually helps increase children's interest in reading. But now there is. And it works. This is just such a lovely idea. <laughs> the fact that someone can come to you with your teddy saying like, oh yes, I had a lovely time. They said lots of nice things. They really missed you and they're happy to see you again. Whilst in the library, they found this book. And they liked reading it. And I think they'd like to read it with you. And that is, oh, it's just, it warms your heart. It does, it does. You come in and they hand you back your stuffed bear and they say, Bobo wants to read We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Bobo. Bobo. I had... That's the name of Mr Burns' teddy bear. Ah, uh, see, I had a Super Ted. Oh, I'm jealous. Super Ted was brilliant. The important thing is that it has actually been proven to work, may help develop children's pro-social behaviour, will increase their 
interest in reading. So this is um, teams from Akayama University, Kanazawa University, Osaka Institute of Technology and Kyushu University. Published in the journal Hellion. The study observed the children before, shortly after and a few days after taking part in a stuffed animal sleepover. Children who didn't spend time looking at the books in their play area at preschool before taking their animals for the sleepover showed a lot of interest immediately after and would actually sit and read to the stuffed animal. Not just reading, but reading to the stuffed animal. Okay. Uh, this is this is a book that they've that you've picked out for me, so I'm going to read it to you because this is the book that you like. And while the effect seemed to wear off after three days, the researchers found that they could sustain the effect by reminding the kids about this, by showing them pictures of their animals at the library looking for books. And it's just, it's just really good. It didn't seem to work for all of the kids, but talking about um, children who are probably aged three or four, which is the point where they start to kind of differentiate between real life and what's an imagination. Um, so it may be that some of them copped on to the fact that it's probably not real. Or just that, oh no, Jenkins doesn't like reading about other bears. He gets very jealous. He's the only bear for me. Do you have anything about fish? But we're almost at the end of our fantastic brain spectacular this episode. Just a few quick more studies from, first of all, the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology that taking cognitive enhancing drugs improves your cognition. So in 2014, the World Chess Federation introduced an anti-doping code. And you might be like, really, it's not like a proper sport. How can you dope someone for playing chess? The answer, well, top of the answers is things like Ritalin, Modafinil, attention modifiers, what we call neuroenhancers. What they do is they either filter your attention specifically onto what you're doing, or they increase the neurological activity so you can uptake information much more quickly over a shorter period of time, and you put all of that together, what you get is someone who can leap ahead in their chess world rankings by up to 2,000 places. The double-blind randomised trial tested modafinil, methylphenidate, which is the generic name for Ritalin, and caffeine alongside um, placebos and did indeed show that while the modafinil and methylphenidate seemed to slow down the player's game, once they controlled for games that they lost due to running out of time, the improvement in performance was really impressive to the point where a player who was ranked 5,000 in the world might, by taking these drugs, be able to improve their world ranking to 3,500, um, around a 5% better chance of winning. And they did notice that there was a similar boost for caffeine, which, you know, isn't over-the-counter, but is still uh, sparking a bit more neurological activity than baseline human, but it wasn't statistically significant, so we can discount any coffee addicts in the audience for now. On the other hand, probably the, the biggest turn that we've had on the podcast so far, consumption of alcohol and marijuana associated with lower GPA in college. This is... A study of 1,142 students tracked over two years after starting college and using self-reported data to cluster them into groups of low users or medium to high users of either alcohol alone or both alcohol and marijuana. 
And it turns out that whilst being, you know, a college-age individual going to college, the, the chances of you using alcohol, certainly using alcohol legally in America, go up quite significantly. The chances of you encountering and probably using marijuana go up significantly. And just drinking by itself is not so bad for you. Drinking and the occasional joint is not that great, but going full bore... Not even necessarily that far, but this is a group with no differences in their pre-college SAT scores. The medium to high users of both substances not only had a lower predicted GPA on average by the end of the first semester, but continued to achieve lower GPAs throughout their study. Students whose substance use decreased over time saw their grade point averages increasing relative to the peers who remained consistently high users. There's that sorted then. If you take the smart drugs, you get better at doing the smart stuff. If you take the depressants, you do worse. Imagine. Although I think it is significant to note that it's the the alcohol and marijuana both that... Um, I think I probably had a few hangovers during my time at university that significantly impaired my capabilities. <laughs> But there were a lot of 8.30, 9 o'clock lectures that were quite quiet, as I remember them. Lots of people seemed to be studying their books real up close. And snoring. But there doesn't seem to be the same detrimental effect as smoking lots and lots of pot. But harmful pollution to your child's brain, child's lungs, can start much, much younger. Babies in prams accompanying older siblings on the school run are twice as likely to be exposed to harmful air pollution in the morning than in the afternoon. A conclusion which makes perfect sense is not surprising at all once you start thinking about it. On the morning school run, you haven't just got the school run traffic, you've also got people commuting to work. Coming home in the afternoon, it's only the school run traffic because all the people who are leaving work aren't leaving for another two hours. And here in Bristol, we have had a big push recently for air quality in the city. There has been a growing national trend towards encouraging air quality as well. And when you look at other countries where regulation is not quite so tight, we're looking at, for example, China here, where entire regions of Beijing have been inaccessible due to toxic smog as a result only of pollution. And the recent WHO report estimates that about 570,000 children under the age of five die every year from respiratory infections only as a result of indoor and outdoor pollution. It's very important to not gas your babies to death. Don't gas anyone, ideally. Um, I mean, this isn't just a gas problem. This study, done by the University of Surrey, is specifically looking at particulate pollution, particles of smoke and dust and um, heavy metals that are emitted by car exhausts. Small children who are, you know, for example, in the pram are encountering much more of it while waiting at bus stops and to cross roads. There's no discussion really about what we might do about this, except for just generally reducing the level of traffic on the streets, which is ultimately what we need to do, I think. That or those um, smog mouth masks are really going to pick up in fashion. If the volcano plumes don't get you, then maybe the Volkswagens will. 
That's an emissions test joke. Of course, on the other hand, if you're looking for things to help harm the development of your tiny children, too much TV can impact primary school readiness for kids from low-income families. And before you go, well, yeah, raising kids with TV is bad, uh, this study from Concordia University looks at equivalent TV use for households that are rated as, you know, high-income and low-income. And what they find is that even among children using TV for one to two hours a day, in either situation, the ones from low-income households are doing it notably worse in school compared to their higher-income counterparts. They've split their participants into three groups based on household income. So the lowest are looking at a household income of around $21,000 a year for a family of four, whereas the higher income homes are around $127,000 income a year. Those kids saw no impact whatsoever on their school readiness based on their TV viewing. Which makes you almost think that maybe there's something to do with school readiness that isn't TV viewing. It's almost like the thing that's different between these two groups is the money. Now, they have shown a correlation between more TV and lower school readiness in the lower and medium income households. But again, with the medium income households, the effect is less marked than it is in the lowest income households. And I guess the question we need to ask based on this is what are those higher income households doing differently? I suspect probably the adults in those households are encouraging more active viewing of television they are sat there discussing things with their kids as they're coming up on the screen in a way that the parents of lower income households probably aren't able to do because it's real hard being poor. To say nothing of the sheer physical availability of in a low income household, maybe there is just not as many people in the house to help with getting the kid ready and they are watching TV. Maybe the parent is all already off to work by that time in the morning and the kid is... Um, self-supervising after a certain age. Or indeed is being looked after by their siblings, indeed. rather than, say, a nanny. Well, that's the kind of thing that we'll have to find uh, more long-term studies for, because you've mentioned previous studies looking at TV and readiness, and that's, I mean, that's an entrenched part of a household by this point. TV isn't new, it's, it's been around for a while. Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to get funding for longer-term studies completely disproportionately to how useful long-term studies are perceived to be, and are. Because you can think, you know, data gathered for this population over the course of a weekend probably doesn't have the same clout behind it as a 10-year retrospective study. A three- or four-year study doesn't have the same impact as one carried out over 20 or 30 years. Now, for some things, you just need that amount of time to see any difference. For example if you're looking at the overall survival benefits of different medications. However, finding someone who will fund that kind of investment in time, resources and energy gets harder and harder the more you have to forecast into the future. The longer-term studies don't get the same amount of funding as a quick, cheap, easy job. Which is unfortunate because even the people who are funding the studies consider a long-term study to be more valuable. And I feel it is important to note that we're talking about... Uh, environmental policy and science here specifically. 
throughout the paper they refer to the Long-Term Ecological and Environmental Study, or LTEs, L-T-E-E-S. And the authors of these reports express more demand for the LTEs than they do for short-term research. But the bodies who fund this research, even though they want more long-term research, long-term research is more useful, they're not as willing to fund it as they are shorter-term studies. This research used a few factors to assess how valuable a study is considered to be. So frequency with which articles of a scientific journal are cited in other scholarly articles, which increased in correlation with its percentage of articles dealing with long-term studies. The amount of citations a particular article receives has a very strong positive correlation with the length of that study. Long-term environmental studies are better represented in scientific journals than policy-informing reports. And Assistant Professor Kirsten Groerand-Colvert from the Oregon State University points out that rockfish, the subject of her studies, can live for more than 100 years. Three years doesn't do it for us. If we want environmental research that effectively informs policy, it means we need funding cycles and funding agencies to build that long-term storehouse of science. That's how we can meet the demand for policy-relevant data. And one more note about long-term planning and long-term policy comes from Indiana University, where they have put forward the case that increasing the minimum wage by $1 in the US would reduce teen pregnancies by about 2%. Which is about 5,000 pregnancies a year. Lindsay Rose Bullinger, study author and associate instructor and doctoral student at the IU School of Public Environmental Affairs, makes a plain case that higher wages can give teens reasons to keep working. Their advancements opportunities improve, they had good reason to delay childbearing or substitute work for leisure. This is one of those things, I think, there's been a lot of discussion about the various impacts that increasing minimum wages have. You know, it means there's less need for, for anyone to subsidise people, who are working, there's more money in everyone's pockets. I don't know if anyone would have expected it to decrease the teen pregnancy rate, but if it's that easy to do, if it's as easy as a dollar per hour to do... And that's at the federal level. The federal minimum wage is $7.25. But the article points out that some cities and states have a much higher level, like uh, San Francisco and Seattle, where $15 is the hourly minimum. And you know what, I can bet that if you map teen pregnancy as a density over areas of minimum income above, you know, say, $10, $11 per hour, I'm expecting you might see quite a decent matchup. Yes, I expect you do. And it's not just teen pregnancy. Bullinger cites from previous research that an increase in the minimum wage is good for the overall health of people working. They live longer they're less fat, they're less likely to abuse children. And they're also more likely to spend it. It's going to go back into the economy because you know who spends lots of money? Poor people. It's expensive being poor. Especially in America where you have to pay for your own health care and it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to carry a pregnancy to term. You know what? We should go back to the fun studies again. We definitely should. And here's a fun one which will explain why we described ourselves the way we did at the top of the programme. New study examines whether dogs are feline-friendly or not. 
And not only do they investigate whether dogs who are in shelters may or may not like cats, they do this without upsetting any cats. It's got to be quite a task to find out how friendly a dog is around cats without jeopardising a cat, but what you can do instead is break down all the things about a cat they might not enjoy. What about seeing a cat? They tested this by showing their sample of dogs a doll shaped and sized like a cat and got no response. What about the smell of a cat? Again, the smell of a cat did not produce any useful responses. I suppose all that leaves you with is the sound of a cat. Now with this, they hit on something. So looking at 69 pet dogs of a variety of breeds and mixed breeds, dogs with a history of killing or injuring a cat or other small animal spent longer orienting themselves to the cat sounds than the other dogs. The idea is, by transferring these tests to dogs whose history with cats and other small animals is unknown, you might be able to suggest when a family comes to the animal shelter and says, we'd like to adopt a dog, but we already have a cat or a rabbit or some other small animal in the house. Do you know which ones are friendly? Oh, we've got Bruno over here. We played him a cat noise and he looked for it and then sat back down, didn't really seem to mind. Um, but Thrasher over there spent about five hours trying to hunt the thing. So maybe, maybe not Thrasher. I'm now imagining Thrasher, and I suspect he's a poodle. I think we've got time for one more weird biology story, just before we part ways for this episode. So let's have a look at what the University of California Davis has found out when they tried to figure out why pandas are black and white. Now there's other black and white animals out there that we've figured out why they're black and white. Uh, Polar bears, mostly white, because they have the thick insulating coats of hollow hairs, which also lend them a camouflage. Zebras, on the other hand, have black and white coats striped up and down them, so they get uh, protection from different flies. We talked about this with horses a long time ago in one of our earlier podcasts, and I've even heard that the difference in heat absorption across the black and white stripes can lead to a kind of convection effect and help cool them down. The stripes create a dazzling effect of breaking up the zebra's outline so that when lions are trying to separate out one zebra from the herd, it gets real difficult. So that makes sense for zebras, polar bears. So pandas. The reason pandas' particular pattern of black and white markings mostly seems to be related to the fact that they are rubbish at being bears. I mean, you think about, like, facts you know about bears, things you know about general bear behaviour, probably... Somewhere near the top of that list, there's going to be bears eat all summer and all autumn to get themselves nice and fat so they can sleep for the whole winter. Panda bears, on account of their completely inexplicable decision to eat bamboo rather than, you know, meat and nuts and berries... Which they are physically equipped for. They have the teeth. They have the teeth and the digestive system. They do not have the digestive system for bamboo. But they do it anyway, and therefore they can never lay down enough fat to be able to snooze through the colder months. So their white heads and their white bottoms help them to camouflage themselves in the snow. What about their black shoulders, arms, legs and ears? Help them to hide in shade, because as well as not being able to snooze through the winter, pandas have to range a very long way, including 
all sorts of habitats, from snowy mountainsides to tropical forest. Okay, so we've got the white back and bottom for the winter, and we've got the black arms and legs for the forest. Yeah. So in the forest, you can see the white bits. Probably. And in the winter, you can see the black bits. Probably. But the black bits don't form the shape of a bear, which may or may not be helpful. I don't know. Pandas don't make sense. I mean, the bit that does make sense is the markings on their heads. So their dark ears may help convey a sense of ferocity. Oh, yes. Every time I look at a panda, I think, oh, what a predator. What a what beast. What a ferocious beast. <sighs> I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I agree with the position that we are wasting a lot of conservation money on pandas. Because they're bad at it. They are so cute, though. They are very cute and fluffy. But also terrible at being bears. Bad, bad bears. Maybe that's a book that your stuffed animal could read to you once you get it back from the library sleepover. That's about all I've got time for. Apart from maybe these few quick studies, including a quick word from the New Mexico State University, that they've managed to patent a new type of maple tree. There's a lot to be said about the ethics of patenting an organism, but this is at least a decorative tree rather than a useful one. So I'm willing to let it slide for this time. I mean, it feels very derivative of Mother Nature. And in what might be the ultimate technological leap, scientists from the Institute for Basic Science are managing to store information in a single atom. One bit of information? Exactly one bit. It's the smallest bit you can find. How did they sell that to the funders? Oh, we've managed to store information in an atom. Really? How much? A bit. But until next time, you can find us on Twitter at Eureka Nerdcast or send any emails to EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Any iTunes reviews, subscriptions are very welcome so you can keep up to date with all the latest science from us to you. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. That is an hour and 43 of podcast. Fucking felt like it. That's not even slightly how that works.